Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and have some great people helping us along the way. Childhood illness can turn a family's life upside down. We probably all have friends or neighbors or colleagues or workmates or community members, maybe even family members who have coped with or are currently coping with childhood illness. While it wasn't my child, many of you know from the past that my dear friend's son, Gavin, was diagnosed in 2018 with Ewing sarcoma. And I was there for the initial meetings, the tests, the surgeries, and flew in for some of the hospital visits or just to help out with my friend's other child who often had to be sidelined And that is the norm sometimes when a sibling is ill. It's hard on everybody. So perhaps you remember the interview that I did with Gavin's sister who talked with us about being a sibling um, of somebody who was ill. And unfortunately, because Gavin's cancer was so aggressive and so unbelievably rare, he did lose his battle with it. And Jaden, his sister, so beautifully discussed how to talk to kids and how to cope with the children who have lost a sibling. And that's definitely one to listen to. Those were hard talks, weren't they? But we really do need to learn how to talk to kids about all of this. Perhaps you just want to know how to be a good friend or a family member while someone else you know is going through this. I applaud you for being here because, you know, from what I've gathered from my friend uh, throughout that entire experience, they need people like you to show up and be supportive. Perhaps you're here because you need to get some questions answered for yourself and your own child who may be coping with a childhood illness um, from dealing with hospital stays and delays and medication and missing out on some of the fun stuff in childhood fear of the unknown, um, intense feelings of everybody around you who cares about you. For all of this, we're going to be turning to Dr. Jen Pratt. Dr. Jen Pratt is a pediatric physician that is caring for children in the very same hospital where she was treated for cancer when she was a child. Her story has come full circle back to where her life was transformed. Dr. Pratt is now able to help improve the lives of other children battling critical illnesses with the gift of wish referral through the fabulous Make-A-Wish organization I'm sure many of you have heard about and personally share in the transformation that comes with her patients' wish experiences. Since 1980, Make-A-Wish has granted more than 520,000 wishes worldwide. And you know who had one of those wishes? Dr. Jen Pratt. This will be such an eye-opening interview with someone who truly understands childhood illness, what it feels like to be a child who has been treated, who is enduring lengthy hospital stays, whose emotions and life was on a roller coaster ride, and now seeing it from the other side so that she can help us learn how we can best help our children, their friends, our neighbors, those kids in our lives who are dealing with childhood illness right now. So welcome, Dr. Jen Pratt, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Before we get into our discussion about talking to kids about critical illnesses and hospital stays and all that goes with it, I would love to know what gets you up in the morning and what started you on this journey of helping kids fight and cope with childhood illnesses. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my story goes back about 28 years ago, just before my 11th birthday. I was um, kind of a typical like fifth grader. I was active in sports, basketball player. I figure skated. And, um, and then all of a sudden our lives were just completely turned upside down. I mean, I think anyone who has been through a cancer diagnosis, a diagnosis of any sort of critical illness, they know that just in a day, your whole life can be completely changed. And that's, that's what happened. Um, I was having a pain in my knee, which I had attributed to a sports injury and just wasn't going away. It was getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually um, I was taken to my pediatrician and had an x-ray done. And uh, unfortunately I had a tumor in my bone. So it sounds like kind of similar to your friend, Gavin. He had it in his rib. Yeah. Ribs. Okay. Yeah. And for me, so it's a a different type of bone cancer, Um, but, uh, you know, similar in some ways to Ewing sarcoma. Um, and just, I had this huge road ahead of me after hearing that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so my treatment consisted of chemotherapy and surgery and intensive physical therapy, uh, and a lot of time in the hospital. And it was from that experience that I knew, I knew during that very trying year that I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I wanted to you know, use this experience to hopefully uh, give back and help other children and families that uh, were dealing with critical medical conditions. Uh, and that really was that that's what really sparked my career mm. and drives kind of the passion for what I do today. It, it's so fascinating. Uh, and I and I think that people must be so grateful for your expertise because a friend of mine just told me there's just nothing that can substitute personal experience. So if you could go back to the moment, if you can, if you remember, when you were told that you have this childhood illness, that you have cancer, how did they tell you? What did that feel like? And, and do you wish that they had done anything differently? Yeah. So I remember every detail uh, of finding out that news. I remember the entire day um, because it's such an emotional experience hearing that, um, that it's something you just never forget. Um, I was, I'm so grateful for the medical team that I had um, because I think they really, they talked to me um, not like, you know, a young child, but as someone who deserved to know the information and what information my parents got was the same information that I got. Um, so for me at that time, I think that was really helpful. It was appropriate information. It was um, given to me kind of in, in pieces. And I think whenever we're communicating a cancer diagnosis, there's a lot we don't know up front. So it's a lot of, all right, we know there's a tumor in your bone. We, we know that this might be cancer and we need to first get some sample of the tissue to find out what it is. So we know how we can best treat it. And I thought that that approach was really comforting to know that there was a plan. We were going through this together. I had a team of people uh, behind me and supporting me. And while it was incredibly hard to hear that news, it's hard to see your parents crying in an exam room, um, getting that, that news. You knew it was a big deal. You knew this was serious. But at the same time, um, I also felt supported and I felt hopeful, even though there were so many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is it's so important. I just highlighting the fact that you wanted to know the truth. You didn't want it to be dumbed down or sugar-coated um, and that you and your parents kind of became a team working together along with the doctors so that everybody was on the same page. And the idea that they were communicating that 
they had a plan that yes, there were uh, some unknowns, but they were handling them and that they, this was not their first time doing this, that you, you they were going to be doing this and, and on it and in it with you. I, I think that's, that's just so important to be able to, to be able to rely on the people in your life. I know that Gavin often said to his mother, I just want to know the truth. Like, don't keep anything from me because this is their body, right? This was your body. This was your life. And we so often want to protect our children. But in this case, we really need to have everybody on the same page or there's a lack of trust. And once trust breaks down, you're done. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I think if I would have found out that my parents were getting separate information from me, it would have made me feel much more unsettled. Um, And to know that we were both hearing the same thing at every appointment, uh, it just felt like we were a team. We were in this together. uh, And that I knew all the information I needed to be able to cope and process the diagnosis. What about when a child is younger? You know, you're talking about like four years old, five years old, six years old. Does it make a difference in how we're communicating that information? You are in fifth grade. So that certainly puts you in a different category of life. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Um, I would say that children pick up on so much more than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Um, And for children that age, I think one of the biggest things that they pick up on is how their family and caregivers are processing the diagnosis and coping Mm -hmm. with the diagnosis. Um, And they'll often emulate what they see around them. Mm -hmm. So while you're going to explain a cancer diagnosis to a four-year-old differently than you will to a 10-year-old. Um, I think a lot of the focus there is still is still communicating directly with the child, but also supporting the family in a way that they're able to positively cope with this very, very um, traumatic news um, in a way that they can support their child and provide that environment um, where they feel safe Um, where they feel supported and where they can still be hopeful about Mm -hmm. the future. So if we're in a situation where we have one of the younger children, it's likely about being very concrete Mm -hmm. uh, because that is their way of understanding the world and not using jargon that they wouldn't understand. I mean, to even call something a tumor would be you know, something that they probably hadn't heard about before, maybe saying something, there's, there's something that's growing in your body that isn't supposed to be there. And we are going to do our best to shrink it and take it out. Can you explain how you might talk about something like that? If, if you were younger at the time of receiving the news or you were delivering the news to a child who was younger? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think exactly. So talking in very simple, but concrete terms, Mm -hmm. um, is so helpful. And that's where too, when I'm talking about a diagnosis like this, I rely on our child life support staff at the hospital to assist with that. Very special people. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. They made like all the difference in my, um, in my treatment and, and recovery. But I think, um, like you mentioned, saying there's something growing in your body that's not supposed to be there. There's, if, for, if I had a brain tumor patient, I might say, you know, there's an owie in your brain that we're trying to take care of that's not supposed to be there. And we need to give you medication to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that process goes on, we get questions from kids all the time. And I think it's so important that, you know, we try to address the questions as they come and trying to approach kids with simple information, but then saying, what questions do you have about it? Yes. Because sometimes it's hard to know exactly how they're processing and what they're thinking about um, on the spot unless you ask. And so I think simple terms and then really trying to kind of get a sense of what they're thinking and how they're responding is usually the best approach. I, I find it interesting when people say, 
not about this in particular, but just in general, oh, my child takes everything in stride. Like he doesn't even ask about it. He doesn't talk about it. So it must not be bothering him. And I'm like, and no, like, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> that's likely not true. They're just dealing with it in a different way. And when we suppress what we're, you know, the questions, what we're feeling, we're watching everybody, as you say, crying or upset, and they don't want to do or say anything that's going to further upset the people that they care about. They may pretend that everything's fine, but what do you do with the children who aren't talking about it, which I would be more concerned about in this case? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think exactly what you're saying. So kids process things very differently. Um, there's some children that may talk a lot about what's going on and some that may internalize it yeah. um, and not say much at all. And I think um, simple conversations, frequent conversations to ask more about what they understand, mm-hmm. um, worries they have, um, what hopes they have, uh, are going to give us insight into how they're coping and how they're understanding their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And what we need to realize too, is this is a process. So oftentimes younger children are going to understand more as they go on through the treatment process. Um, and it's not all an upfront conversation mm-hmm. and to ensure that understanding, um, as we go through treatment is important. That makes sense. So a friend of mine just ironically or uh, just sucks in every way, but contacted me yesterday and told me that her son had been ill for the last month. He's been missing school. He's been weak. He's been frail. He's been pale. And yesterday they found themselves in the hospital because he couldn't speak or walk and started throwing up blood. Um, Hmm. If it does, and they're thinking that it may be cancer, but she's currently, as she mentioned, just in denial right now. So um, they're waiting to see specialists now. So if it does turn out to be childhood cancer or for anyone who's listening, who needs to have these types of conversations, what about talking to the, the family, like the siblings, the people involved, what are they to say when somebody they love has cancer? Yeah. So my sister at the time of my my diagnosis was five years old. Mm. Um, And I would say, um, you know, (laughs) the impact of a cancer diagnosis on a family is just, you know, so far reaching. And as you know, with your friend, siblings are right in it. Um, and they are definitely affected, um, in ways that are very profound. I mean, similar to the child that's going through it in some ways. Um, so I think trying not to forget (laughs) about those and how they're processing. I think there's so much focus on the child who's ill by everybody, um, and really trying to take one-on-one time with those siblings to um, listen to how they're processing, how they're dealing with this. Um, Because I think we'd be surprised sometimes to hear um, what their thoughts and fears are. And I think it often goes overlooked. Um, So one thing for my sister that was great um, was when she came to visit me in the hospital, she always felt... uh, like it was a really fun and comforting environment. Uh, so there were all sorts of activities for her to do. Again, this is where child life staff was just wonderful working with her. Um, and we tried to, you know, make it a very positive experience. Uh, so she would want to, you know, come and be involved and feel a part of uh, the process. Mm, I love the idea of, of letting them be a part of it and not kind of ushering them away, um, trying to, you know, keep everything like everything's normal. Don't look this way that they're part of it. And again, don't feel like somebody knows something that they don't. I really did like that. My friend kind of created a team of us to, it was kind of like Jaden's team. Mm -hmm. uh, And she had us on a, on a text call, like all of us together, 
Um, just making sure that we were checking in with her, that we were doing things like, I mean, I sometimes just flew out to just be with her, you know, take her to lunch. Uh, I was, you know, took her to the first day of high school, um, you know, th- just did her hair. I don't know the special things that needed to be done because her mom couldn't do it and wanted still for her to have the attention that she deserved and needed during a critical time of her life. I mean, that young adolescence, middle school, you know, that time when, you know, there's so many changes and questions and who am I and, and, and that kind of thing. You don't want to be relegated to, I am the sister of an ill sibling, just that and nothing else. Um, but also that I am, I am the sibling of an ill sibling and I, I may need to talk about that too. So I really like that she did that as well. Would you recommend something like that for your, for your patients and for your families? Yes. So absolutely. I think, you know, what you said exactly, making sure that siblings have individualized attention and oftentimes it's the parents that don't really have the bandwidth during these times to really provide that. So I think, you know, one way that we can support um, people we know that are going through this is to do exactly what you did, where we reach out to see, is there something we can do to help um, with the siblings to make sure that they're seen, that they're being taken care of, um, being validated and heard? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they need to be part of this experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, because you just have just this incredible insight, I want to cover the do's and don'ts of talking to kids about childhood illness, like throughout the process for like Mm -hmm. looking at throughout the process, you were that child who had a childhood illness. You walk the halls of this hospital, you, you now work in and you see patients coming in. So what would you say were the biggest blunders or mistakes that people made, not necessarily the doctors, just people in general, you know, family members or, or other parents or friends or teachers, like what were some of the biggest blunders that you would say, like, let's not do that. Um, when it comes to helping, I mean, like they have their heart in the right place, of course, or whatever, like they, they just, people don't know what to do or say. Right. So when it comes to, how you were going through your illness or your medication, your hospital stays, you know, coming back to school, whatever it was, like, what were some of the biggest blunders that you're like, don't do this? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, I can think of a few. Okay, Um, great. See, we like those. So, yeah. So one would be, um, you know, in terms of just like medical care would be feeling like I'm being talked over. Mm. Um, So when the nurse or the doctor, um, or even like if, if you're a friend visiting, um, if they were to talk to my parents saying like, how is she doing today (laughs) when I'm sitting right, um, or how is this going or how is that going? You know, I think making a point to talk to the child, um, you know, I think in, in healthcare, that's sometimes some, something that people we'll just kind of revert to the parents. They, you know, it's, um, kind of instinct for some people, but remembering that, um, again, children often know more (laughs) and you think they do. And most children are fully capable of, um, being addressed directly and, um, answering questions directly. Of course, there's some circumstances where you're just feeling so sick. You don't want to, but at children the opportunity to respond uh, and to have any say or control over what's happening to them and, you know, over their care. I think that was a huge thing. Um, In terms of friends and family, you know, I think one thing uh, that it can be really hard for people to have a friend, um, let's say it's, you know, your child's friend at school or something like that, who gets diagnosed with a critical illness. And sometimes people don't know what to say or what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some people that tend to, um, you know, get a little flustered with that and then just take a step back and they, they don't interact as much with that person. Um, maybe yes. they think they're intruding or being bothersome. 
Um, and then there's some people that, you know, just step up and say, you know, I'm just going to, to be here to, you know, what do you need? Or I'm going to, um, you know, send you a card or phone call or, um, and just, just to reach out to say that, you know, they're thinking of you. So I think trying not to be afraid of someone who is going through a diagnosis like this um, and being there and reaching out to say that you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's simply just being there, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, it's like, don't objectify the child in the make, in the sense that like you're talking over them, but don't, mm-hmm. uh, don't forget about them. <laughs> don't forget about them or push them aside because you don't know what to say, like out of fear of not knowing what to say. Right. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Exactly. All right. Important to remember. And what now if let's sort of flip things around and say, what were some of the things that people did that you're just really memorable that you're like, you know what, if I'm ever like on the other side of this or, or even as a doctor, when you go, Hey, like, I'm going to tell the next family about that. Like, what is something that you have either seen personally as a child or as a doctor now that you're like, Oh, that is such a good idea to, to be able to help this child or this family in this way. Yes. Yes. So I think celebrating milestones is so important when you're going through a journey like this. Uh, Usually there's like a set amount of cancer diagnosis of treatments or rounds of treatment um, that children need to go through and taking time to acknowledge uh, the accomplishment of, of getting through each phase in in treatment is, um, is important. Uh, so we had a group of um, people from my mom's work that were so kind and came to the hospital every time I was there to like celebrate the next round of oh, treatment. Wow. Um, and so they would, you know, bring some gifts, bring some treats. And, you know, it was something that I looked forward to every time. And I always, you know, I look back and remember that just having this group of people that that cared and they were able to acknowledge and celebrate with me. Um, of course, a lot of kids don't feel well (laughs) when they're in the Mm. hospital and and getting chemotherapy. Um, and so sometimes these celebrations can look different. You know, I know at the end of therapy, we do a lot for patients. Um, they get signs on their doors, they get, um, you know, kind of a big celebration to say, look at, you know what, you've made it through something extraordinary. Mm -hmm. We need to acknowledge what you've been through and celebrate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I can talk to you about, you know, my experience with Make-A-Wish. That was such an impactful, um, an impactful experience for me to have something to look forward to Mm -hmm. um, about. And it's something we see, you know, every day in our, our children that are dealing with critical illness. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Uh, Gavin did have a, a wish, a make a, um, from Make a Wish. It's some kind of exotic vacation. I remember. Um, I don't remember where it was, but it was like I don't know, it was Cuba or I don't know, it was someplace unusual, and there was zip lining and all kinds of of crazy things, um, and just a nice, like, amazing family vacation. Uh, with lots of adventure. Um, I know that you had uh, a trip to Disney, but tell us about how Make-A-Wish kind of impacted you as a child and now as as a doctor, how you see it impacting patients who are dealing with critical illness. Yeah, so absolutely. I was so um, fortunate to have the opportunity uh, to be granted a wish through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And for me, one of the things that I did to cope with during my treatment was um, drawing, animated movies, um, that sort of thing. I love Disney movies. So my wish was to go to Walt Disney World and meet an animator um, and enjoy oh, wow. the with my family. So yeah, it was awesome. Um, I specifically scheduled my trip um, at the end of therapy. So Um, it was something that we had to look forward to. And it was something that was really like a turning point in my treatment because 
it finally, you know, gave us something to be really excited and hopeful about. And uh, I think, you know, not just for me, but for my sister, for my parents, for our whole family. And it was a way for us to spend time and celebrate together and also acknowledge what we had just been through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's important to, to have that celebration, but also kind of debrief people to get away. I mean, I just remember like, they just want to like burn the clothing that they were wearing, you know, at that point, like, like the, the, the blankets, like, you know, and there was a point where, the, where Gavin had gone through remission and rang the bell. And unfortunately it came back months later, but before that it was like any sweatpants anybody's wearing any socks, any, like anything, just like get rid of it, you know, and get away, like just being able to, you know, be, be with your family and not be in a hospital with no beeping machines and, and all of the, and, and the, and the port and all that stuff was just so such a a moment of, of, of success. Even like when it wasn't even like some kind of exotic vacation, but just remember Gavin going to like a, it was like a festival right there in town and just being able to like walk in a festival with booths and people and just be like normal, just being normal was so important for, for health and well-being. Yes, absolutely. And I think what we lose with a cancer diagnosis is it's just that a piece of normalcy, that piece of our childhood that Make-A-Wish really um, gives us the opportunity to get a little bit of that back. And It was so powerful, um, to have that experience. Um, one thing that Make-A-Wish has done actually this last year is what we call a wish impact study where they surveyed, uh, over 3000 patients, uh, families and physicians, uh, that treated these children. And the, I mean, the results are astonishing. I mean, I would say it's something that I feel like we've always kind of known, but it kind of puts numbers to that. Um, and you know, we found that Make-A-Wish really brings back that, that hope and improves quality of life. Um, the perception by treating physicians is that 75% of their patients actually did better after getting a wish. Mm -hmm. Um, and the thought is that it just, improves, you know, quality of life, family and patients' ability to cope, less anxiety, depression, feelings of hopelessness. And um, it it really uh, does so much to act kind of as a turning point in how families are able to cope with these diagnoses. It's important to take away from that, that for people who are dealing with childhood illness and, and having something to look forward to is really important as well as having memories to go back to, to revisit when you're going through more of these uh, visits to the hospital. It's so important Um, whether you're talking about make a wish and some kind of large scale trip or just those small moments of normalcy where kids can go, Oh, like this weekend, I'm going to be able to see a movie with a friend in my home. Like I'm not going out because I can't be exposed to this, that, and the other thing, but at least I'm going to be home. I'm not going to be in this hospital and I'm going to have a friend and no, they can't be like next to me on my bed, but like they can be over there and we're watching something together. And then remembering that moment later on when there's, you know, another stick of a needle, there's another you know, Mm -hmm. some kind of new medication, there's another chemo is really important. So I I just appreciate that as a, as something that we really do need to kind of keep into play. Now, what about um, if we're, we're dealing with, you said, there's a lot of questions that kids have during the time when they're going through this, there's questions from friends and there's questions from family members. 
One of the questions that I, I've done a lot of research on um, for my book, because uh, I'm writing a book based on this podcast, how to talk to kids about anything. And one of the chapters is on dealing with death and dying. So how do kids kind of internalize those answers? So for a child who is going through a childhood illness or a sibling or a friend, sometimes a childhood illness can bring up fears and questions about death and dying. Mm -hmm. So that's a tough question. And I hate talking about it, honestly, but we have to. So when a child, whether it's the one who has the illness or a child who loves the child who has an illness, how can we talk to them about this when they say, but could he die? Or am I going to die? How do we cope with that very, very tough question? Yeah. So I think that's a really, really hard topic, especially with children. Uh, I think something that, you know, we all um, kind of have a reaction to thinking about, you know, talking about death with a child. And I, you know, again, going back to, children know more than we give them credit for and trying to be upfront and honest. And, you know, the truth is a lot of times we don't know all the answers. Sometimes there is a lot of uncertainty and sometimes we get to the point where we know that children do have terminal illnesses and we need to start talking about that. Um, Again, I like to let the child kind of guide the conversation by what their thoughts are, what their fears are, and talk very um, matter-of-factly, but also, you know, in a supportive way um, where we're listening and having an honest conversation back and forth. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, end-of-life care for children, um, Children, um, you know, again, they, they often know what's happening. Um, They sometimes will tell you, right? Absolutely. And I think as adults, sometimes the thought is to, um, you know, kind of shield them from that. And shut it down, right? Exactly. Yeah. But talking about what we do know. Um, obviously all of us are going to die at some point. Um, and you know, unfortunately some children are going to die sooner rather, rather than later and talking about the focus being what they want to do and experience with have left. How do we optimize their quality of life, make them as comfortable as possible and also, um, incorporate some legacy building and some memories uh, for those that they're going to leave behind. I agree with that. Um, Gavin was a very special kid. He really wanted, they kept like a very detailed blog, uh, during this whole thing. They wanted everybody to know exactly what was going on. You know, they, these, these, my friend, her family had just a lot of people rallying and it would be very hard to tell a million people, but People want to know what's going on and they want to be able to support. They want to also, you know, be in the know, not that a family who's going through this has any pressure, should not have any pressure to feel like they have to. It's, it's just, it can feel good to them when people can rally around them. And Gavin wanted to take the blog. This was, you know, one of his wishes for life was to take the blog and make it into a book which we did. It was, you know, like a year long process, but so he, he wanted it to be called Gavin's guide to winning in life when it really matters. And it's a memoir and it's, and it's a love story between him and his family. It's just so beautiful. It's very special that people use it to, to talk to their families. They, he's just very honest. My friend is extremely honest about what was going on. There's also funny things in there, but like just getting an understanding of what the child was going through during this time um, and being able to say, 
this is how we got around this kind of issue. My friend was also a physician and a medical school professor and a child psychiatrist. So she had a lot of background and they were able to work on this together. He wanted that to be his legacy. His whole idea, once he came to the conclusion that I, I am going to die, but I do not want my experience here to be in vain. I want it to inform other people who are going through this so that they don't feel alone. So even like the little things of, you know, um, hacks around the, the hospital, like how to get, you know, how to go take a walk around the hospital when you have like this, you know, these things hanging off of you and, you know, um, how to advocate for yourself when you have, you're getting a stick, which he hated, but like little details of what he wanted people to know. So making sure you could say the things that needed to be said, I felt was so progressive of him. And so just, he was just so special. How old was he? So when he was diagnosed, he was 11. And then he passed away 18 months later when he turned 13. Yeah. So that was kind of similar around the time I was diagnosed and, um, but how incredible for him to be leave a legacy like that through a book and through, it sounds like his many conversations with friends and he sounds like an incredible person. Yeah. Um, so just, I mean, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah he was amazing. And it just, it's such a teacher, you know, in terms of what, you know, how to gracefully go through this and honestly go through it. My friend is always about honesty and they just had such a, a an incredible exchange about it. So I felt like it was just really important. And when you mentioned legacy, I was, yes, like we want to leave a legacy. We want to make experiences. We want to make the memories through Make-A-Wish, through, you know, seeing our, our child have other things besides just their cancer diagnosis by making sure that those friends stay intact, um, during that time when they're going through it and, and then not avoiding the end of life stuff, because we've got to talk about it. Um, it's actually one of the things I think is just so critical and so hard to talk about at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And but I think once we can, you know, put it out there and talk about it and address it, we're actually able to enjoy um, the time that we have left and make the most out of it. Yes. Agreed about that. Agreed about that. All right. So um, what about when a child is, let's say they, they look really different because they've been going through treatment. How can we prepare friends and family for what they may see when they do visit or when he or she is going back to school and, you know, maybe they don't have hair or whatever. What, how can we, we prepare other people so that they can be supportive and not scared? Yes. Oh, I think that's a wonderful question. Um, so for me, I, um, I definitely looked, looked very different during treatment. I lost my hair. Um, I had major reconstructive surgery on my leg. Um, I was, uh, in a wheelchair on crutches for most of a year or so. Um, I think, uh, acknowledging, you know, that there's a difference, like not just ignoring it, um, you know, saying this is how, um, you know, this friend or this family member is going to look preparing siblings, preparing classmates for that, um, allowing them to be supportive in a way that that child welcomes. So whether it be, you know, maybe coming together to pick out some new hats or scarves or, um, you know, some, anything that that child thinks would be, you know, helpful for them to feel supported and recognized. I think that could be a nice option. Um, and just, you know, realizing that, um, you know, this child's going to look different for a while. Um, and this is why. So a lot of uh, clinics and hospitals will provide, you know, some assistance with talking to classmates too. Um, I know that there's uh, oftentimes like child life workers or social workers that can go to school and talk to a class about what to expect 
from their friend um, who might be gone for some treatment who may be coming back without hair or may look different for a various um, number of other reasons. Like they bloated or their whole appearance could be different. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, talking about it is important. So kids understand why um, and get their questions answered because, you know, depending on the age and the kids, usually kids are going to have questions about it Yeah, and being able to do so in an environment that's safe and, um, you know, making sure that you, kids' questions are being addressed honestly is, it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some kids I know, you know, were, could be nervous about, well, is this something I can get? Like, can I catch it if I'm around him? And we got, you know, we have to make sure that our kids know what the truth is about, about these illnesses, that they're not something that you can just get from being around this person. And um, even if they look still sick because maybe they're pale or they um, don't have hair, you know, there's other, other indicators that doesn't mean that they're sick in the same way that we might have been sick Mm -hmm. uh, at home with the flu. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So give us your top tip. What would you want people to come away with after listening to this podcast about talking to kids about critical illness or hospital stays or the do's and don'ts of discussing some of these tough topics with kids? Yeah. So, you know, I think above all, be honest, uh, be concise and listen. Um, our, I think my, my top things, the more we um, are able to listen and communicate with children, the better we're going to be able to understand what their fears, their hopes are, their misconceptions are, and be able to support them through this journey. And then I would also say uh, as friends, family members of children that are going through these um, types of uh, ordeals, making sure that we're also taking time to address our own Mm. fears and stressors. So we're in a better place uh, to be hopeful, to be positive, um, and to be a supportive environment for uh, these children and families. That's beautifully said that that idea of of caring for ourselves and paying attention to ourselves um, while we are dealing with this emotional roller coaster is is so important. um, One of my one of our neighbors had a child who was diagnosed with cancer uh, last year. She's now in remission. And when she was going through her treatments, I would check in with the best friend Mm -hmm. because I was like, you know, we often forget that the people who are supporting the people who are going through it also need some tender, loving care. Right. I mean, the parents, absolutely. The siblings, absolutely. And also those, like the main people that are being leaned on to kind of just take, take it in, listen to what's going on and that feel like they can't do anything can be a very tough position for even those main supporters, the sister-in-laws, the brothers, you know, like all those people, they need support too. So I really appreciate what you're saying there about that self-care and answering questions for yourself and maybe getting some assistance for yourself while you're going through it, having Mm -hmm. some supporters yourself. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Can you give us the resource of the week? Where can we go to get more information about you, make a wish, all the great work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So wish.org is where you can find out more information about make a wish, information about making a referral, um, information about that wish impact study. That'll all be there and ways that you can get involved too um, in your local make a wish chapters. Oh, great. Okay. And I know that people um, often want to donate to that kind of organization as well. Um, Is it when you're donating to an organization like Make-A-Wish, is it that you can um, bless somebody with a wish in particular, or do you just give a specific amount? Yeah. So typically you would um, donate to your local chapter. 
section. Um, and those, that money would go to uh, serve children local to you um, and provide wishes directly to children in need. Um, there's a lot of ways to get involved. Um, there's often events going on, ways you can also volunteer. Um, so definitely check out wish.org and there'll be a lot more information there and how you can um, become more connected. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I think this is just so interesting to be able to get your perspective as somebody who went through it, as somebody who is going through it from the other side as a doctor. Thank you for all the work that you do every single day and showing up for these kids. That's amazing. I just am so appreciative of your insights, your strategies, just all that you bring to the table about this and uh, having some time with us today. So thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast, like I did, I hope you'll go to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about all the things that Dr. Jen also talks about here and the, the strategies, the um, information that we really need to know to be supporters uh, of those who are going through it, getting our questions answered. I would truly appreciate it. If you love this podcast, if you just do a review, those five-star reviews make such a huge difference in how our podcast is seen. So thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. So don't worry about it if you have, if you're running around, if you're driving. I have all of the things covered, all the links that we talked about. Everything will be right there in the show notes. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Now, I often say parenting is the ultimate do-over, and often parenting does give you the opportunity to do things over again and again. But of course, a podcast like this, when we're talking about childhood illness, we know that sometimes we don't get a do-over. So make sure that we're having the conversations now, that we're doing what we need to now. You are an incredible parent, and I'm so pleased that you're here teachers, educators, everybody who's showing up for this. Thank you. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.